All right. Thank you, Pastor Tim. Well, it's quite a passage to kick off the new year with, right? <laughs> uh, before I get into unpack this hard-hitting, difficult-to-hear, controversial passage, I want to say this. Here at KMCC, we desire to be a church of followers of our King Jesus. And as such, we look to the Word of God as our final authority on how to do that, the Word of God. And as your pastor, my hope and prayer is for us is that we allow God's Word to shape us, which means that we allow God's Word to speak for itself. We're not to argue with it or to change it, to skip parts we don't like or to reason away parts that are uncomfortable. If God's word is our authority, which it is, then it's just that. It's our authority, right? And we listen and we obey. And so I do my best to do careful exegesis of the text so that I can preach to you what the author intended to say. What I don't ever want to do, uh, but what is tragically happening in churches across the country, is this term called eisegesis. And I've brought this up from time to time, but eisegesis is coming to the word of God with a preconceived belief or presupposition or a bias and then I hunt for evidence to back up, you know, my own or one's own belief in Scripture. And with this type of approach to the, to the Bible, eisegesis, people look for evidence to justify their own conclusions, their own plans, or their own ideologies. And ironically, we often call these people experts and consultants, and I've sat down and listened to many of them. Uh, they come into church and they tell us, here's how you handle this sinful situation, how you control this crisis, how you lead people into this new paradigm. But instead of turning to the Word of God for direction, they turn to statistics and surveys and best practices. And then once they've cited all those sources, they'll throw in a Bible verse out of context uh, that would seem to back up their conclusion. Eisegesis. Right? And what you end up with is falsehood uh, that is, unfortunately, is unfortunate and it's damaging. Such as, here are a few that um, I've seen in the church around, successful ministry is determined by numbers and charts. That's not true. Uh, sex outside of biblical marriage is justified, or cohabitation is expected, so it's okay. Uh, Same-sex marriage is permitted and celebrated. Women being elders is the trajectory of Scripture. During the pandemic, for instance, forsaking church gathering was considered saving lives. Misappropriation of funds is rationalized. Viewing pornographic materials is excusable and normal. It's just what happens. How we love others is defined by our culture instead of by Jesus. So love means to accept a person and whatever they do as appropriate and good. doesn't matter what it is. And what happens with eisegesis is that the culture becomes the lens through which we begin to view God's word instead of the gospel of Jesus viewing culture through gospel of Jesus. And so the word of God ceases to change us because we go to God's word seeking verses that will... Uh, back up popular culture and justify our sinful lifestyles. We are looking for evidence that supports our unbiblical view or that rationalizes our sinful behavior. So we hunt for biblical justification for idols of safety and comfort. We search for evidence to justify our pursuit of wealth and fortune. We look for verses that excuse our sinful lifestyles in the name of acceptance and grace. When instead, we should be approaching Scripture with an open mind, hungry for the truth, and humbly desiring it to change us, no matter how uncomfortable it may make us feel, no matter how much it goes against popular culture, because we need to be changed. God sent his Son to save us from the very things that we want so badly, those things that destroy us, our fleshly desires. All that to say, we need to allow Scripture to speak for itself. 
And then we base our conclusions and our beliefs upon the, what the Word says. And this is called exegesis, right? We don't come to the Word of God with our minds made up, searching for evidence to back up our own self-serving ideologies. We come to the Word of God in humility, asking God to show us His will and to change us into true disciples of Jesus, our Lord and our King. When our lives don't line up with Scripture, we repent. When we learn that our actions are sinful and the Holy Spirit reveals this to us, we seek His forgiveness. When idolatry is exposed in our life, we turn from it. When cultural practice doesn't line up with Scripture, we steer clear of it. When there's sin in the camp, we purge evil from among us, as Paul says. We read the Word of God so we know how to live and how to love as Jesus lived and how Jesus loved. I gave this analogy before, but I like to drink tea, as you can tell. And I like my tea strong. I always keep the tea bag in there all the time, right? I drink tea for the flavor, not necessarily for the warmth and to clear up the pipes. All right? So I never take the tea bag out of the water because the longer it steeps in the water, the more pronounced the flavor. And that's how we need to approach God's Word. We allow the Word of God to steep into our minds day in and day out so that, like the hot water, our lives take on the flavor of Jesus. The, the more we are in the Word, the more pronounced the flavor of Jesus will be in our lives. We allow the Word of God to steep in our minds and change our minds so that we know how to live and how to love as Jesus did. And, and we also need the truth of Jesus steeped in our minds so we know what is true and what is false as we look into culture and the world around us. So today we're going to talk about something a bit heavy. It's extremely important for us as the church to understand, though. And that's the concept of uh, church discipline or the concept of judging and discerning sin in ourselves and judging and discerning sin and problems within the church, dealing with it and then restoring fellowship. This passage in 1 Corinthians 5 can be viewed by those outside the church as judgmental, non-tolerant, or xenophobic. Unfortunately, it can be viewed by those inside the church as that as well. The mantra goes, we should accept everyone where they are at, not judge them, show them grace and love for who they are. Paul's last line, purge the evil person from among you, flies directly, seems to fly directly in the face of this way of thinking. So what are we to make of this? What are we to do? Are we reading Paul correctly or incorrectly? Is our popular church culture correct? How do we figure all of this out? Again, we must go to Scripture and let Scripture speak for itself. So the passage comes on the heels of 1 Corinthians chapter 4, which we finished back in uh, the last week of November, uh, where Paul had just warned the Corinthian church to stop their divisive actions, to stop their arrogance, stop posturing and gossiping, and to be unified around the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of Jesus, that God incarnate came into the world to die, rise from the dead, ascend into heaven where he rules over all those who follow him by faith, and he will one day come again to judge the living and the dead. And our December sermon series was about Jesus who came as our king and reminded us of those truths. In chapter, uh, Paul, in chapter 4, he ended it by saying, The kingdom of God does not consist of talk, but in power. And he says, What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with, a, or with love and a spirit of gentleness? In other words, Paul was saying to them, With Jesus as our king and his kingdom... He gives power over sin and division. So lean into his power, get your act together, or I'm going to come and I'm going to get it together for you. Paul had some pretty strong words. The Corinthian church members were messing around, and Paul was not messing around. 
Being a follower of Jesus is serious business, and Paul was making that his business. Now, Paul heard about the church's division from Chloe. We look in chapter 1, verse 11. Uh, Chloe's people came and reported to him that this division the church. And then here in chapter 5, verse 1, Paul tackles another topic that was at work to divide the church, and it was reported to him uh, most likely by the same people, by Chloe's people. And in this passage, he sounds almost incredulous as to this report, which is understandable because even uh, the pagan Roman culture would harshly punish incest. They didn't tolerate it, and they were just as hypersexualized a a culture as we are. And so this was a big deal. If the Romans thought it was wrong and it was happening in the church, this was a big deal, right? It's, it's a sorry state of affairs. It's quite a sick situation. A man sleeping with his stepmother or mother, uh, not good either way, right? So that intro is free of charge, but before we get into the text, I want to describe something to you that may help you understand uh, this passage a little bit better. It's a, there's a medical condition that some of you may be familiar with, but if you were like me, I wasn't very familiar until I looked into it. Uh, the medical condition is called gangrene, and here's what I found to be interesting about gangrene. You see, blood plays an important part in the role of our physical health. Not only does it transport oxygen and nutrients throughout the body to feed the cells, it delivers disease-fighting antibodies that protect your body from infection. When blood cannot travel freely through the body, your cells cannot survive, infection develops, and tissue can die. Gangrene is a condition that occurs when body tissue dies. It is caused by a loss of blood supply due to an underlying illness or injury or an infection. So fingers, toes, limbs are most often affected, but gangrene can also occur inside the body, damaging organs and muscles. There are different types of gangrene, and all require immediate medical attention because it can be deadly. Treatment for gangrene involves removing the dead infected tissue, preventing the spread uh, of the infection, and then treating the condition that caused the gangrene to start in the first place. And the sooner you receive this treatment, uh, the better your chances of recovery. Depending on the type of gangrene, treatment may include surgery. So the dead tissue is surgically removed to prevent the spread of infection. In some situations, amputation, removal of an affected limb may be required. That seems really, really drastic, right? The other one I thought was interesting, the other way of treating it is maggot therapy. Um, Believe it or not, maggots are still used in modern science uh, medicine. Maggots provide a non-surgical way to remove dead tissue. When used to treat gangrene maggots, uh, the fly lobby are placed on the wound. They consume that dead tissue, and they uh, they also put some uh, helpful antibacterial stuff in there, and then it heals up because all of the bad tissue is gone. So with that disgusting image in mind, we're going to move to our passage. And you will see how this revolting topic is relevant to what we are reading today. All right. So our first point is remove the gangrene or remove the leaven, depending on how you like it. I kind of couldn't figure out which, which analogy I wanted to use more, so that's why I put it in your things. All right. So chapter 5, verse 1 to 5. It is actually reported, Paul says, that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans, for a man has his father's wife. And you are arrogant, ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though I am absent in body, I am present in spirit, and as if present, I already pronounce judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, 
You are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. So, good grief, right? Man sleeping with his mother. Most commentators think that this is his stepmother. Either way, scandalous, disgusting, revolting. This is, wasn't a one-night stand either. This was an ongoing incestuous relationship, something that pagans don't even tolerate. Even in our day, in our hyper-sexualized culture, society at large still frowns upon this particular behavior. And yet, Paul says that the Corinthian church was arrogant about this going on in their midst. Proud, even. Paul's like, this shouldn't be happening. This man should not be allowed to persist in this behavior. Why aren't you upset and mourning over this situation, right? And I can just hear it, though. All we need to accept him for who he is and lovingly show him the grace of Jesus. If he believes in Jesus, all his sin is forgiven anyway, right? And here's what I want you to notice about this passage, though. Paul was not just reproving and condemning the man who was in sin. Paul was reproving the church as a whole for allowing this sin to go unchecked, unpunished, and undealt with. In fact, they were not just turning a blind eye to it. It seems from what we read here that the church was puffed up about it. They were prideful. They were arrogant, Paul says. Most likely, they were saying things like, all things are lawful for me. Chapter 6, verse 12. We'll get into that in a few weeks. All things are lawful for me, so I can just do it. In other words, he's, he's forgiven by Jesus because he believed. Now he can live however he wants, right? We're not saved by following the law of God, but by faith in Jesus. And Paul said that we don't grow in our faith by following the law of God, but by continuing to trust in Jesus. And once saved, always saved. See, we have justification by grace alone, through faith alone, all that. We've got to figure it out. See how spiritual we are, right? And Paul's like, ah, you got it wrong. You should not be proud about your sin that's in, your, in the midst of you. You should be sorrowful and repentant. Remove the sinful person from your midst, he says. You see, Jesus didn't save us from our sins so we could go on sinning like we used to. No, Jesus saved us from our sins so we don't have to go on sinning like we used to. The very term to be saved assumes that the situation you were in before being saved was a bad situation, right? If you have to be saved out of a situation, that means that situation is not good for you. It's a deadly situation. Why go back to doing what was deadly if you've been pulled out of it and given life? This is Paul's point. Additionally, why allow something that is destructive and divisive and deadly to remain in the body? Like dead and rotting gangrene tissue, it needs to be removed or the whole body is going to fall. When many of us uh, read this, first read this passage, because we've been conditioned by our culture, we ask why. Why remove the so-called brother from the church? What, what harm is it if he stays? Shouldn't we treat others as we want to be treated? Aren't we to forgive and demonstrate grace to one another? Why such a drastic punishment? Shouldn't we rather encourage him to godliness? Shouldn't, we shouldn't be judgmental, right? All those questions come to our minds. And the answer go back, goes back to, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10. Paul's overall purpose in writing this entire book is to prevent division in the church. Division and destruction are caused by sin. Paul demanded in 1.10 that there be no division among them, and that they be united in the same mind and united in the same judgment. And so here's the issue. An unrepentant sinning believer is like gangrene to the body. This man's sin was causing division and corruption in the church, and then... 
were not, they were not of the same mind or of the same judgment. That man did not have the mind of Christ, right? He was proud and arrogant over something that was, that was an offense to God. And his mindset was infecting the church. And the only way to save the integrity of the body and its overall health was, like gangrene, to cut off, remove the diseased member, and allow healing to happen. I mentioned that the only cure for gangrene is surgery or maggot treatment. Gangrene is dead tissue that will only cause more dead tissue. Thus, it must be removed for the sake of the whole body. Is it painful? Yes. Is it uncomfortable? Yes. Is it deforming? Potentially, yes. Especially if the body part is amputated, right? But the removal is for the good and the health of the whole. Now, the irony is not uh, lost on me that I'm preaching on this passage today, for we had to do this a year ago this weekend. We removed a leader in our church because of unrepentant sexual sin. It was a painful experience for the whole body. All of us mourned. We mourned both the sin but also the loss. It was tough. In fact, in preparing this message, the motion came back. The grief was brought to the forefront of my mind. However difficult the grief may have been, the result of the removal has been beneficial for this body. Spiritual health, growth in our midst, like we haven't seen in a long time. According to Paul, this act of cutting off, removing sinful members is the responsibility of the church community. Interesting. And it goes back to the Old Testament concept of Israel as the people of God being separated from the nations of the world and holy unto the Lord. Leviticus chapter 20, verse 26, God said, You shall be holy to me, for I, the Lord, am holy, and I have separated you from the peoples, that you should be mine. And the way in which Paul writes this entire letter leads us to understand that there were aspects of God's moral code written in the Old Testament which still apply to God's people today, the church. It was a matter of holiness. Leviticus 18, 6-8 addresses this particular uh, situation, God says in Leviticus 18.6, None of you shall approach any of his close relatives to uncover nakedness. I am the Lord. You should not uncover the nakedness of your father, which is the nakedness of your mother. She is your mother. You should not uncover the nakedness, her nakedness. You should not uncover the nakedness of your father's wife. It is your father's nakedness. Now, did God put this moral code of conduct in place as a means of hindering their fun or cramping their sexuality? No. God put these things in place for their own good, actually for their well-being, for their health, for their prosperity, for their happiness. And in reference to the moral code in the Old Testament, the Apostle Peter also assumed that it applied to the church, to some extent, in the same way that Paul did. In 1 Peter 1, he writes, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also are to be holy in your conduct, since it is written, Old Testament, right? You shall be holy, for I am holy. Peter's talking to the church. That's us. Peter's quoting the Old Testament, and he's telling us how to live. And here's the truth. God desires for his people, us, the church, is that we be holy. And his desire for us is more important than an individual's sinful desire. Because sin is ruinous, it is disastrous, it is deadly, it is divisive, and it leads to, like, death. If one of the body parts is spiritually dead or sinfully rebellious, uh, meaning that they are arrogantly living in sin and refusing to repent, is this 
man was, Paul says that they need to be cut off for the sake of the church and for their own, for their own sake, for the individual's sake. So in order that this church in Corinth would not have divisions, that they would have the same mind and same judgment, and to protect the church from a spiritual decline, Paul told them to remove the man who was in sin. And in this situation, the health of the whole body was more important than the feelings or the needs or the excuses or the sinful desires of the one who was in sin. According to Paul, it was the spiritual and moral responsibility of the church community to hold its members accountable for their actions. According to Paul, it was the spiritual and moral responsibility of the church community to hold its members accountable for their actions. So how should this be done? If the situation were to arise, how does a community remove someone? Well, Jesus himself tells us in Matthew chapter 18. I'm going to turn there. You can if you want to. Matthew chapter 18, beginning in verse 15, Jesus tells us how we're to handle this. If your brother sins against you, go and tell his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, then tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. So in 1 Corinthians, the man in question was sinning against everyone. And everyone else was already aware of it. So there's already a few steps that have gone in Jesus' there, in Jesus' uh, description there. The issue was that this man was being brazen about it, even arrogant, saying something like, what I'm, what I'm doing is not wrong. Even if I was, I'm free to do this because Jesus paid the price for my sin. I'm forgiven, so I can just live how I want. And this arrogant attitude led to the rest of the church also being arrogant about it. See how tolerant we are. See how loving we are. See how progressive we are. You do you, buddy. Right? But their inaction, the church, by their inaction, the church was condoning this man's behavior and they were condoning his sin, which caused division in the church. And this man was already to the point in Jesus' passage where the church needed to remove him and treat him as a sinner, someone outside the church. In verse 3 to 4, Paul is saying that it is the responsibility of the church to pronounce this judgment upon this man. In verse 5, Paul says that they were to cut him off so that his flesh would be destroyed, but also so that his spirit would be saved in the day of the Lord. Now, many commentators think that this person is, again, this person in question is referred to in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 5 to 11. You can write that reference down. You can look at it later. I'm not going to read it right now. But um, the church had cut him off, removed him from the body, so that hopefully he would repent and be reconciled to the body again. And it seems that from 2 Corinthians 2, 5 to 11, that this man did repent and that he ceased from his sinful behavior. And at that point, the church had the opportunity to forgive him, to comfort him, to receive him back, and to reaffirm their love for him. It's a beautiful picture of restoration. What a wonderful example of repentance and faith leading to loving reconciliation. So the purpose of discipline within the church is always with the hope of restoration. This man was removed from the community, handed over to Satan, meaning, I know that's a really scary thing, it just simply means that he was put out into the world, Satan's domain, allowed to follow the course of his sinful behavior. Right? And Paul's phrase, the destruction of the flesh, refers to the destruction of the sinful behavior. Right? Flesh and, and sinful behavior is often synonymous in Scripture, um, which happened when he repented and allowed the truth of the gospel to guide his new behavior. Right? 
The church hoped that his spirit would be saved in the end through repentance and restoration to right relationship with God and with the church. And thankfully, from what we can gather in 2 Corinthians, this man repented, his faith in the gospel was restored, and he was reconciled back into the church. The key point is that the man had to repent before he was restored. An additional point I want to make here, verse 5 is really actually very difficult to translate, and there are a number of ways that this verse could be understood. The word used for his spirit in the ESV and a few other translations could also be translated as the spirit or the, this spirit, as in KJV or others. There's no sure way to know Paul's exact intent when he wrote it, but another possible interpretation of this verse is that Paul is referring to the spirit of the church. He's talking corporately about the whole church, meaning that when the church delivers this man over to Satan by removing him from the body, the fleshly sinful behaviors that are at work within the church body are destroyed and the spirit of the whole body of believers is saved or made whole. Uh, the word saved means to be healed, to be made whole, to be made healthy. So you go back to the gangrene thing. If I remove gangrene from my body, it's so that it doesn't eat away at more of my body. The infected flesh is destroyed, so to speak, so that the rest of my body, the spirit of my body, is preserved or made whole or made well. So removing gangrene saves my body, making it whole, healthy, and strong again. So the action of removing the man who was refusing to repent from sin was done for the purpose of preserving the precious unity and strength of the whole body there in Corinth. The removal was for the longevity and purity of the other members in the church. And I think that both interpretations of this verse are viable and applicable, but the second interpretation to me fits the intent of Paul's whole letter, right? He's, he's talking about a gospel-centered community. He's talking about unity and purity as the church and it also fits the Old Testament concept of cutting off a rebelliously sinful person from the community so that the people of God may be holy and different than the sinful communities around them. And it also Paul, uh, ties into Paul's analogy regarding the Passover in the next few verses. So now we're to point two, prevent the spread. All right, starting in verse six. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Now, I like to make pizza dough. I used to work at Pizza Hut with Pete Burry when we were both in high school, uh, and we made pizzas all the time. Uh, I still love to make homemade pizza dough to this day. It always intrigues me, though. I can put a couple cups of flour, some salt, water, other ingredients into a bowl, and it stays the same size as when I mixed it. But after I take even a pinch, a teaspoon of yeast, and I add it to that mixture, the dough swells three to four times the original size. Even a small amount of yeast can cause change in swelling to the whole batch of dough. In Paul's day, they used leaven. Leaven is a lump of dough from a previous batch of yeasted dough. And when that lump is added to a new batch of dough, the leaven ferments and causes the whole lump to rise, right? As Paul puts it, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. It sounds kind of funny, I know. The Jews had a practice that once a year, getting rid of the leaven and then starting all over from scratch. Back then, in primitive conditions, the leaven could become contaminated, full of disease or bacteria, 
And so the cleansing practice was done for the health of the family. Really smart. This was done at Passover. Interestingly enough, they would get rid of all the leaven in the house and make unleavened bread for the feast of Passover. And they would enjoy the Passover feast with unleavened bread and with the Passover lamb. And they started the new year out then with a new lump, a clean lump. This feast reminded them that they were a saved people, a freed people, a redeemed people by the blood of the Passover lamb. Whoever was under the blood and eating the feast was part of God's community. And leaven symbolizes sin. The Israelites cast out the leaven each year as they commemorated the salvation of God through the blood of the Passover lamb. Cool picture. And this is the metaphor that Paul is using here. We, the church, are the people of God, just like Israel was. We are holy, separated uh, for God's purposes. We are the people of God, saved through the blood of the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, right? Takes away the sin of the world. But sin is like leaven. Even a small amount of sin in the body believers will affect the whole lump, some of us. If you are a believer in Jesus, you are joined by the Holy Spirit to a local body of believers. You are joined to the church. The Spirit does this to us spiritually. Paul is pointing out that sin by an individual in the congregation affects the whole lump, some of us. One person's sin affects the whole. And we love to quote the verse, when one member suffers, we all suffer. When one uh, member rejoices, we all rejoice, right? We, we say that. But this idea of interconnectedness and unity applies to sin as well. When one member is living in rebellious sin, we all suffer for it. Sin causes the body to bloat with boasting, division, gossip, arrogance. Sin causes friction and fractured relationships and contention and accusations and emotional and spiritual injury, deception, lies, all that stuff. And for the sake of the body, then, it's important for sin to be exposed and dealt with. Like the Israelites did with the old contaminated leaven, were to cleanse out the old leaven, the old sinful behaviors with its malice and evil, as Paul says, and were to remain unleavened, clean lumps. When we, repent, when we repented at first and believed in the gospel of Jesus, the Lamb of God, he took away the leaven, the sin, through his death and resurrection, right? He did that. Thus, we are unleavened bread, and Paul says that we should stay that way, unleavened, simple, pure, full of sincerity and truth. When our family lived in the jungles of Papua New Guinea, as church planters, we were in a remote tribal village far away from town. And there was one time during those years uh, when my oldest son, probably about seven years at the time, he had a tooth problem. And since we were so far out in the bush, we didn't have a lot of medical options, we attempted to treat the symptoms, aspirin or whatever for the pain and the fever and antibiotics for the infection. The problem was, using those medications only masked or covered the condition and the infection for a short time. What we really needed to happen was to get rid of what was a rotting tooth. He needed a root canal. Eventually, when he did not get better, we flew out of the tribe to get that root canal. Uh, we found out later that our son very well could have died from the infection had it got into the bloodstream had we not got him to a dentist so he could remove the source of the problem, a rotting tooth. The root of all problems, both within and without the church, is sin. Sin can only be dealt with one way, and that's by removing it through the forgiveness and grace of Jesus Christ. Sin can't be dealt with by reforming your life, by doing good works, charitable deeds, by paying your dues, following all the laws. Sin can't be dealt with through counseling and therapy. Sin can only be dealt with through the repentance and faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
Sin can only be dealt with through repentance and faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Repentance and faith in the death, burial, resurrection, and return of Jesus is the only way to deal with sin. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. We are all sinners. We all need the remedy, and that is Jesus. But the heart cannot believe in Jesus' forgiveness if the heart doesn't repent first. The heart must admit, what I am doing is wrong. It is sin. I need Jesus to save me from this sin within me because it is killing me. And then trust Jesus that he will do it. In response to the simple repentance and faith, Jesus saves us and removes that sin from us. If an individual can't bring themselves to repent and believe the good news of Jesus, then like treating the symptoms but not getting to the root of the problem, the root of the tooth, right, sin will remain and cause serious problems and death. And if an individual won't repent and trust in the good news of Jesus' forgiveness, then that root of rebellion and and rebellious sin remains in the church body and it causes serious problems and division and relational death. So Paul says, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump. Now, if you're counting, this is the second time that Paul tells the church to remove him. These are only a few verses. Second time he's told them. He's going to tell them one more time, too. Third point, treat the condition. Remain clean, verse 9. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not not at all meaning the sexually immoral of the world or the greedy or the swindlers or idolaters, since then you would have to go out of the world. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he's guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. He's saying... Remain clean. Disassociate from the man. Now, removing the root of the problem is what he's asking them to do. And then don't put the root of the tooth or the root of that problem back into your mouth. Cut off the gangrenous flesh and don't come in contact with it, is what Paul's saying. Now, that sounds harsh. In our day and age, people call this intolerant, bigoted, chauvinistic. I've heard the excuse, well, if I cut off the relationship with that person then I won't be able to share the love of Christ with them. And then they do things like support gay marriage, affirm alternative sexual lifestyles, so as not to come across as judgmental. I just want to leave the question, what would Paul say about that line of thinking? And then Paul continues. He says, Although we are to disassociate from those who call themselves Christians or brother and yet persist in rebellious sin or sexually promiscuous sin, we are to still associate with unbelievers because those are the very people that Jesus called us to reach. Paul's saying that if we disassociate from those who do not believe, then where would we go? (laughs) We would have to leave the world, and that's not what God intended for us. God intended for the church to be a light in the darkness to shine forth the glory of Jesus Christ. The church, uh, the testimony of the church is vitally important. And this is what Paul's point is. We are to be holy, set apart people for the Lord. This is why Paul is so adamant about removing the rebellious sin- sinner so-called, and the so-called brother and disassociating from him because the light of the church was at stake. Jesus said, by all this, by, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. It's not loving to sleep with your stepmother. It's not loving to allow a person to sleep with a stepmother. It's not loving to be sexually promiscuous. 
It's not loving to boast about someone who's being sexually promiscuous. Very contrary to what we hear today, but this is the truth. It would not have been loving to the rest of the church for the leadership to do nothing and allow this man to sleep with his stepmother as if nothing was happening. His sin was infecting and eating away at the whole body. And what kind of message do you think that this sent to the rest of the congregation or, or to the young people in the congregation? But it's also not loving to the community at large for the church to say that behavior like this is okay because all is forgiven under God's grace. It's not okay. God's not pleased. God is not okay with flagrant sin. The church misrepresents God and confuses the lost and dying world when we belittle sin and allow it to continue. And Paul says that we are to judge or to call into question those inside the church. Verse 12. That's a really interesting verse. Read it. Isn't it our responsibility, he says, to judge those inside the church? Not in a condemning way, but in a, hey, we're all to grow into the likeness of Jesus together, right? Not to prove that we are right and they are wrong, but so that we all grow in our walk with God and with others so that the testimony of the church before the lost world is preserved. Paul says that we are to separate from a so-called brother who will not repent and obey the Lord, but we are not to separate from the lost world because we can't. We are called to go into the world and make disciples, calling people to repent, turn to Jesus in faith, and follow him with their lives. You see, Jesus entered the sinful world, yet he remained untainted. He ate with sinners. He hung out with scoundrels. He, he even ate with tax collectors because he knew that they needed what he had to offer. He knew that his death was the only thing that could save them from the sin that was in them and change their lives forever. Jesus loved the world not by leaving them where they were at, but by calling them to follow him because he is the answer. Jesus is salvation. We sometimes forget this fact. Jesus came and died to save us from our sins, to pull us out of our sin because sin causes death. We're to go into the world and proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of sin and darkness and into his marvelous light and life so that they too may repent and place their faith in Jesus for forgiveness and salvation from sin. You see, Jesus died to save us from sin, not to leave us where we were at in the toxic cesspool of death, but to take us out of it, wash us clean, and give us new life, which we enjoy. That is why it is inconsistent. It is a lie for someone to claim to believe in Jesus and yet want to remain in unrepentant sin. A true brother has the Holy Spirit in him. And that spirit is going to move that person to repent and turn back to Jesus. And Paul's whole premise is, why jump back into what was killing you? Why allow toxic sin to remain in the body and to contaminate it and to destroy it? And Paul's like, you don't want to allow that to stay in the church body. Purge that evil person from among you. And this line, purge the evil person from among you, comes from the book of Deuteronomy. It's repeated seven times in that book. Seven times is an important number in Scripture. To purge the evil person from the community was commanded by the Lord God in reference to a prophet who taught rebellion against God, an individual who worshipped idols, a reviler, a drunkard, sexually promiscuous person, a rapist, an adulterer, or someone who was involved in incest. Those were the seven people that were supposed to be removed. In each case, the person was formally removed from Israel, the covenant people of God. It's interesting how closely this list mirrors the list in 1 Corinthians 5, 11. 
Back in chapter 4, verse 6 of 1 Corinthians, Paul makes a statement that he did not want the Corinthian church to go beyond what was written. He just, he's like, I don't want you to leave this behind. And what was written at that time was none other than the Old Testament, which included the book of Deuteronomy. So Paul's sub-point is this. By reading the scriptures, we learn from the mouth of God how he desires for his holy people to live as the united people of God. So the moral code of conduct has application for the church. I want to end this message. This is a tough, tough message, right? So let me end this message with the following thought, all right? Nothing like this is going on in our church. However, we can still learn from this passage. And here's just one example that comes to mind. The Net Bible uses an interesting term in reference to this man who was in this incestuous relationship with his uh, mother. And the, the translators in that one use the word cohabiting. Some, someone is cohabiting with his father's wife. And we hear this term all the, all the time nowadays, men and women cohabiting with each other before they are married or with other people who are married or instead of getting married, right? And what is, a, what is concerning is that many Christians follow this cultural trend as well. Like what was going on in Corinth, many so-called brothers and sisters, they live and, uh, and sleep together before marriage. Many, like the Corinthian church members, are even arrogant about it, and they continue in it under the pretense of grace and forgiveness. We are saved by grace, and all is forgiven. This is our faith journey. We're living in the forgiveness of Jesus, so we're just going to continue doing this. While all the while, the Bible prohibits cohabitating. It's called fornication, sleeping with a person who's not your spouse. Now, there are all sorts of reasons that people give for why they do this, but all the reasons are really excuses for the fact that they want to live the way they want to live. They want the benefits without the commitment. They think God's way is restricting and archaic and, and doesn't allow for the fullest expression of who they are. They value tolerance and acceptance more than holiness and sacrifice. They, want, they don't want the Word of God to change them. However, everything God does is for our good. When God puts down a moral standard or a moral code of conduct, it's for our good. I've done a lot of premarital counseling, some marriage counseling, and what I've learned through the years is that cohabiting leads to many unwanted consequences down the road. I, in fact, I was reading an article out of the New York Times a while back. New York Times. The article pointed out that cohabiting has many adverse effects. Couples are more likely to divorce, more likely to cheat later on, and experience less contentment and fulfillment in marriage than couples who do not cohabitate before marriage. Isn't that fascinating? A secular article pointing out what cohabitation leads to, the negative consequences that God said would happen, right? I wonder why that is. God's word is true. That's why. It's confirmation that God always wants our good, and so following God's word and God's way is always best for us. But more than that, when a church is committed to living holy lives, calling sin out of its midst, and removing rebellious sinner, then God will use that church to shine in the darkness, pointing the way to the salvation of Jesus and the true freedom that he gives. So these are not popular things, right? Tough passage to preach. I'm not naive to know that there may be some in this room who are thinking to themselves, boy, I've really messed up. Am I done? Will I be booted out of the church? To which I'd respond, as Paul did in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 5 to 11, no. When an individual repents, there is the superabounding grace of God. The superabounding grace of God. God's grace is sufficient and his forgiveness is lavish. As a church community, we turn to repentant individuals in love and forgiveness, demonstrating the grace and the comfort of God to those who repent and turn to him 
in faith. That's what this community is about. None of us are perfect. Paul is not advocating that the church judge and condemn people for failing. No, failure requires grace and forgiveness and love. But Paul is advocating that the church deal with open rebellion and unrepentant hearts. Unrepentance, unrepentance requires removal and purging and cleansing. And there is a difference. What did Paul say at the beginning? Shouldn't you be mourning? Becoming aware of and removing sin from the body is not easy. It's like pulling a tooth. It hurts. And there's mourning involved. But Paul's appeal to the Corinthian church is don't continue in the lifestyle from which Jesus had to save you. Flee it. Purge it out. Don't associate it. Cleanse it so that in unity you may celebrate God's goodness through Jesus Christ in sincerity and in truth. So remember, removal is always for the sake of the health of the body. Purging out the evil is done so that they repent and turn back to Jesus in faith. And repentance and faith are always met with forgiveness, love, and restoration in the name of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. It, 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 sometimes it's hard to hear, but we need to hear it because it, it cleanses us. So thank you for this passage this morning. Thank you for the fact that we can turn to your word as the authority in our lives and you as our authority. This life is not about us and about our desires and what we think is right. It's about you. It's about your kingdom. It's about your grace, your forgiveness, your love. God, it's about all that you have done for us in Christ Jesus. And God, we just want to honor that. We just want to say thank you. You have forgiven us so much. We are unworthy of your love and your forgiveness and your lavish grace, and yet we receive it with joy and thankful hearts because you're such a good God. So thank you. Thank you for sending Jesus for us so that we could be freed from the toxin of sin that, is, that does nothing but kill us. We don't want to go back to that. Why would we go back to that? We love you too much. So now as we turn to the table and remember the, the cost for Jesus to remove our sin. God, may that, may that just um, solidify in our hearts our desires to live holy lives for you. Lives that, that are pleasing to you because you are a king and we love you. And we just want to honor you with who we are. We pray this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.